Welcome to the first session of the Alchemy Symposiums. I am joined today by Dr. James Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, thank you. We're going to be talking about a few issues, but um, before we get too deep into the weeds about what is called health equity, I'm just wondering if we can start from the beginning and help people to understand the difference between two terms that they really need to see the, the, the polar opposites of what those terms mean. And the first one would be equity as opposed to equality. Can you help us through that a bit? Yeah. So um, obviously if we want to talk about health equity, we have to understand the concept of equity. And if we want to understand the concept of equity, we have to distinguish it from a similar sounding term that's actually extremely different called equality. So most of us are big supporters of equality. We believe that there should be you know, equal access, equal opportunity for people to engage in whatever it happens to be in society, whether it's work, whether it's uh, access to healthcare, whatever it happens to be. We feel like there should be this equal access. Nobody's limited or fettered or prevented from being able to access whatever it is that they need or want to get into. Uh, equity is a very different concept. Equity starts from a position that sees access as intrinsically biased in certain ways, and it seeks to adjust the system, adjust shares within the system to generate not equal access, but equal outcome. Mm -hmm. So the way that equity proceeds from a, from a perspective of theory would be that everybody's approximately the same. So if there is equal access, then there must also be equal outcomes. So they measure the outcomes to determine whether or not uh, equal access is actually possible. This creates a situation in which um, very often, and I don't want it to become like political, but it, is, it does tend to be bureaucratic type decisions try to uh, adjust the situation so that the, the numbers on the back end come out equal. Um, and then they say, well, if the numbers are coming out equally on the back end, that must mean that we've made up for whatever inequalities there are on the front end. So mm -hmm. an example of this that I saw uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, in the education literature was talking about with the current pandemic, there's this controversy, what do we do with students' grades? And some of the students' grades, some of the plans, I should say, for the students' grades are to just introduce a pass-fail system and not really worry about GPA this term because it's, you know, a big disruptive change. Some, however, are arguing, and this is taking place at some colleges, but this was in particular for K through 12, that a more equitable plan would be to give everybody A grades. So mm -hmm. we're just going to give everyone an A. Uh, top level grade. Why? Because students who already have high level grades, A's mostly, GPAs close to 4.0 as we do in our system, it won't change their GPA much, but it will maintain their good grades. Whereas students who have lower grades, it will bring their grades up more. And the lower their grades are on average, the more it'll bring their grades up. And so it will equal out that, that uh, number on the back end. So we're just going to bring everybody's grade up to an A that will benefit the students with the lowest grades the most, 
that will not harm the students with the best grades, but will benefit them the least. And so the policy is, is put forward that everyone gets an A. And the controversy that I saw was that a particular school system, I think in Seattle, was, was trying to achieve this or to have this implemented and it wasn't being implemented. Hmm. And the argument was, well, Seattle actually has, Seattle, the particular schools or the Seattle school system overall, if you look kind of nationally, are even lower than average. Uh, as compared to a lot of other school systems. So they need to be brought up even more than other school systems. So of course we must give all the Seattle students A's. And you can kind of see how this gets things backwards. Um, it doesn't look at any causes of educational uh, lack of attainment or causes of educational at attainment in the cases where students are working hard, studying well, earning A's. Instead, it views the situation as I was saying, the only measurement they look at is the measurement of outcomes. So the assumption with grades would be that whatever it is that allows certain students to make A's or make good grades in general must be a set of privileges that are unfairly earned. And so all good grades are the result not of hard work, not of merit, not of, which they don't believe in merit. Merit is, is considered an ideology to justify oppression under theory. Uh, it's all the result of unequal circumstances, whether it's home life, whether it's uh, access to food or resources or whatever else. So certain students are more advantaged. Those students make good grades. That's unfair and unjust. Certain students make worse grades. They must be less advantaged, disenfranchised, discriminated against in some mysterious or vague way. And so that must be made up for. And so that the way to make up for it is just give everybody the top grade, no matter what their work looks like. Um, because it makes the numbers come out even on the other end, which therefore shows that, you know, whatever the problem is has been made up for. Um, you can kind of see that this is like putting wallpaper over a hole in your wall and now it's smooth again. Um, it's not really correcting for if there are even whether it's discrimination, whether there are actual nutrition issues, whether there are, you know, home life issues on average that, that go across different demographics differently or whatever just giving everybody an A cannot possibly adjust for, for those actual issues that may be contributing. Um, and of course, there's no consideration of individual effort or merit. It all has to do with situations, systems, and group identity. So there's no attempt to address what's actually occurring there. There's just the attempt to, to make equity. That's a rather extreme example and a rather extreme situation. You know, we don't have a pandemic every century, I guess. But, um, that's the idea of the difference between equity and equality. The definition that I first read for social equity, which stems back to the late 1960s and gained a little bit of, of backbone in the 1980s, uh, and that's the source I read is from the 1980s, defined equality means that citizen A is equal to citizen B, and equity means adjusting the shares so that citizen A is made equal to citizen B. So that's the, the big picture difference. Now, there's a lot we can talk about in terms of, you know, is equity reasonable? When is equity reasonable is actually the more appropriate question. When is it unreasonable? Um, when does it help? When does it actually harm? But the difference there between equity and equality is pretty stark. And I will add quickly that the view from within the, the theory that, we're, that, that champions equity as a policy program 
is that uh, equality is actually a myth. It's something that's been, gen the, the idea that there is equality or that equality is even possible is a myth that has been generated by the powerful people in society so that people who don't actually have an equal access to the, the resources and opportunities of society will mistakenly believe that they do and so they won't agitate for you know radical policy changes or social or political revolution uh, to get their own. So they believe that equality is a myth that's created by the powerful in society, perpetuated by them, put out by them, maintained by them in order, so in order for them to keep their power and privilege and to continue making sure that people who are oppressed or marginalized according to how they think of the world uh, don't realize that they're oppressed and marginalized and don't take political action on their own behalf. So where does this theory in effect do harm uh, equity where, where we understand that from their perspective, they're trying to create an equal outcome for all. And of course, I think, I believe I start to hear the, the voice of Michelle Foucault somewhere in there but, <laughs> once again, but, but where does this actually do harm in terms of quality for all? So, um, equity actually, and they explicitly say this, equity requires discriminating in order to make up for differences. So the phrasing is usually something along the lines of, since the system is unequal, we can't use equality to get to equality. We have to use equity. So we Say have that to one more time again. You're saying that equity, it's <laughs> yes. required to discriminate. Correct. You have to, I mean, it's actually the simplest thing to do is to take it, before we talk about the harm, is to just jump back historically to how this became like the buzzword of the, the century, um, along with diversity and inclusion and a couple of other related terms. And uh, while I said just a moment ago that social equity theory, you know, was already kind of bubbling up in the 1960s and through the 1970s and into the 1980s, the kind of landmark thing happened in the Supreme Court in 2003 with a decision, uh, Bollinger versus Grutter, that uh, was looking at, I think, admissions to the University of Michigan law. And the question was whether or not affirmative action is constitutional, I believe against mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment. Right. And the decision that the court made in 2003 was the affirmative action in, uh, in, in acceptance to law school uh, was, was not constitutional. You could not use affirmative action to change uh, access. Right. But one of the dissenting opinions from one of the judges or justices was that if schools want to try to push similar programs in terms of trying to increase diversity or enhance inclusion or to create equity, that would be one thing. But affirmative action is totally different. So equity actually became a it's affirmative action <laughs> wearing a trench coat. It's it's what it is. Um, it actually just became a way for uh, colleges following that dissenting opinion, and it was particularly colleges at the time, to implement affirmative action programs under the names of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which have become this kind of trinity that we all hear about all the time now. And that's where all of these diversity and inclusion and diversity and equity and inclusion offices started to become central in the university administration was so that they could create greater access for some minorities, particularly uh, black, Hispanic, and indigenous people, uh, 
and they could possibly, as has now happened, as in quite the scandal, uh, actively discriminate against other minorities who, like Asians, uh, East Asians and South Asians both, who tend to outperform everybody, uh, whether they're racistly discriminated against by systemic powers or not, somehow they manage to outperform everybody. So at Harvard, I think last year, or time is dilated because of the pandemic, I don't know, but I think it was last year there was a massive scandal um, at Harvard where it was found that they were actively discriminating against uh, against Asians in terms of admissions. And so what you actually also have happening now is one of the pushes for equity in education. And I don't want to focus too much on education. It's just happening and it's easy to look at. Please go right ahead. Yes. They're eliminating uh, talented and gifted programs are eliminating uh, advanced placement classes and testing and those programs because they are disproportionately accessed and populated by white and Asian students, but not by black, Hispanic, and indigenous students. And so clearly the way to fix that problem is just get rid of those programs. The claim is that they take up a disproportionate amount of money for a minority of students, namely the ones who can actually do advanced placement and uh, gifted programs and that most of those students are white and or Asian and they are therefore taking a disproportionate amount of educational resources away from students like Hispanic and black and indigenous students who don't have as much money going to them because more money is going. So that's the argument they give. So equity then comes in and says, well, we've got to just eliminate um, gifted programs. We have to eliminate advanced placement because we have to get rid of testing because whites and Asians do better on tests. And so we're not going to test people anymore. No more standardized tests, no more assessment whatsoever. Assessment is intrinsically racist. So we're just going to have this kind of, you know, education is this kind of open-ended thing. doesn't have any, any parameters. It doesn't have any, any assessment. And then we'll just make up grades so that people come out on the far end in fair. And like I said, this actually, in terms of how it blew up, comes back to a decision that the Supreme Court made against affirmative action in 2003 with a dissenting opinion saying, well, you could push similar efforts under the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. So that's where it comes from. The harm now, I think, is a little bit more obvious, right? Uh, okay. One of the harms. One of the harms is that you're literally taking, say, our gifted or advanced placement type students uh, our best and our brightest and sawing them off at the knees because there are students who are doing worse. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of everything that, that advances people who are doing the best because uh, it comparatively makes the people who are doing the worst look worse. And there are apparently demographic, um, you know, statistically demographic disparities in that. So rather than, again, rather than making the perspective be how do we actually figure out what's going on mm. in all of the different parameters of it that are causing low achievement within, um, say, black or Hispanic students on average, or really low income students typically is really the more interesting thing that they never talk about, because mm -hmm. theory sees this is actually kind of important for people to understand. Theory sees economic class, which is obviously both the most amenable to policy and the uh, most obvious relevant variable. They see it only as a prop for identity politics. That mm -hmm. Whether or not people are poor doesn't matter. That black people are disproportionately poor is all that matters. And so then that becomes about black, not about poor. And so, you know, your poor homeless white person has white privilege and so on and so forth. Right. Um, 
so the harm though is that you eliminate anything that's high achieving utterly, which means, uh, you know, it used to be the, 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 the cute name for it was uh, no child left behind, but it literally gets turned into nobody gets ahead uh, in the name of equity. Because honestly, equity is most interested in everybody getting exactly the same thing. So I saw a, a thing yesterday about sports in the pandemic, uh, college athletes or athletics, and it talked about how because of budget shortfalls and certain parameters, not even really to do with the, with the virus, that going forward into the fall term or spring term next year, some sports are probably going to be able to be opened in colleges and universities, while other sports are going to have to be sidelined because triaging around massive budget shortfalls is something that has to occur. And there's this pretty vigorous petition going on that it's all sports or no sports. So we aren't allowed to play uh, some sports. We aren't allowed to have some people be able to do things, uh, everybody or nobody. So one of the things that equity actually would, it's actually consistent with equity is nobody gets anything. Everybody starving equals equity because everybody's in the same right. boat. Right. So um, the harms become pretty obvious in, in those regards, taking away the opportunity for people for, for excellence, basically, in order to make sure that nobody's short of excellent. Um, and then you just call everybody excellent if you want for equity, give them all A's. That's the excellent mark. Um, another harm is obviously the idea of uh, token hires. Mm -hmm. So very famously in California, there was a policy that said that every C-suite of some sufficient size maybe, but every C-suite in a corporation had to have at least one woman. Okay, this is fine. So you're putting women into the position. I personally think that women are obviously just as qualified if they know what they're talking about. If they have done, if they have the merit, they're just as qualified to do something as, as men or anybody other, whatever else, I don't care. But when you make a policy that you must have a woman, you automatically put into everybody's mind that the woman might not be as competent as the men. The men had to get there not only by their merits competing against one another, but competing against one another for fewer spaces because at least one of those had to go to a woman. And then that woman, even if she's the most qualified woman, even if she's the most qualified person, you automatically introduce doubt into people's minds that she is less qualified than all the men and maybe wouldn't have been hired if they didn't demand that you hire at least one woman. The practical effect of this is, again, even if she's super qualified, she could be the most qualified person on the planet for the job and mm -hmm. still you introduce this doubt so that then every mistake she makes gets magnified. Every success she has does not get magnified and it actually harms the ability for women to be genuinely advanced in those kinds of, of positions. Anywhere you have this sort of token hiring, there's this sort of a harm possible. A third harm uh, again, to go back to kind of education where it was sort of a big deal, but it's also an employment is a big deal, is uh, advancing people. This is genuinely a problem that they had at, at elite colleges who were allowing in minority students, particularly when I say that, I mean black, Hispanic, and indigenous, not Asian, who were being discriminated against to keep them out uh, for equity. When you allow people to say, come in with a lower necessary test score. So you need more, say, black students at your, uh, at your elite college. And normally you have an SAT score of, say, 1400 to get in. But you say, well, if you're black, it's only got to be 1250. So that, that opens up a wider uh, portfolio of potential applicants and you accept them. 
you will actually accept a large number of people of that demographic who are actually not competent for the thing you've brought them in for, which there's, if it's in an employment situation, you know, you can immediately go to obvious problems that creates. But what really happens is that somebody who would have been high achieving in a place that like a state school, if we're talking in education where they would have gotten a very strong education, they just get left behind. So again, what was no child left behind means it gets turned into uh, certain children that were explicitly trying not to leave behind get screwed over by our policy and get left behind where they wouldn't have otherwise if they went somewhere that, that actually matched their talent. Throwing somebody in a situation that is above their pay grade, whether it's in work, whether it's in education, very frequently leads to them being uh, left behind in a sense where they, they no longer can achieve. So now you have somebody who washes out of an elite college who would have graduated from Penn State, for example. And so now they've that's that's a worse outcome. One last example, and again, it's an education, would be that uh, I've heard several reports. I get you know tons of emails now from people all over the freaking world about different things about this stuff. I've had several people email me, black students in particular, or black recent graduates, uh, but sometimes women who say that their work never gets corrected because they have to they have to get good grades so it would be considered racist or it'd be against equity to give them a c when they deserve a c and to criticize their work and so they now literally have graduated they have their degree they have their certificate they can go apply for the jobs that they have that door open to them that is the point of the equity policy that they wouldn't have had otherwise and they get in there and everybody just sees that they're incompetent because they've actually not earned the degree that they have because part of earning the degree was getting corrected by instructors, but it would be considered racist to correct them. So they didn't get corrected and they were allowed to stay amateur while being certified as professional. But it turns out when they go to get employment or they go to try to work, they just can't compete with other people who were put through a more rigorous standard. But this is, this is a backfiring of trying to adjust shares to make people equal when the, the means to do that is artificial. So there are lots of harms of equity. Uh, that's just talking about, you know, on a superficial level, we aren't talking about getting into the deeper arguments about, you know, the, about markets and how uh, central planning often falls short because people aren't omniscient. They don't know enough about the needs and, and the parameters of, of the situation to adjust shares intelligently mm-hmm. or appropriately. And so then there's ham-fisted mistakes, but we're just talking without the practicalities that we're just talking about in principle and with very specific examples of why equity creates harms. There's also, I didn't add in the fact that there are people being discriminated against blatantly. And then that in addition to, in a practical sense, in addition to that, uh, making it more difficult, say, for a white man in California to get on a C-suite, it also discourages people from trying. Why should I bother if they're just going to hire a, a black lesbian for this position and the I, white men don't have any chance? And I've heard countless stories, right. which of course I can't verify these or anecdotes. I don't know what the statistics are. I don't even think you're allowed to collect statistics on this and publish it in academia anymore for equity's sake. But uh, I've heard countless stories of white men who've been told in confidence by their bosses, 
with, you know, if you ever tell anybody, I'll deny it being attacked on that right. uh, because they're a white man, they basically have no chance of a promotion. So just keep your head down and do your job and don't, don't even bother applying. It's a waste of your time and effort. So again, you have this problem where you start not moving people into the optimal circumstance. And the most general, to kind of close that line of harm thought, the most general sense, anytime you introduce a competing object beyond competence, that comes into hiring decisions, placement decisions, or so on. Anytime you bring in something, some other variable that you're optimizing for, you're no longer optimizing for competence or, or uh, capability or merit or quality of, of product. You're now optimizing for something else. By definition, that is going to divert resources away from success. I mean, this is why you don't, I, I know you're not allowed to say the M word, but this is why you actually don't see any little people being forced by equity and diversity requirements being, to be allowed to play in the NBA. The whole point of the National Basketball Association is to win basketball games. Each team only wants to win basketball games. So there's no equity requirement saying, well, you know, you have to con include this many players on your team under you know, four foot six, and they have to play this many minutes per season and blah, 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 because now you're no longer optimizing for success on the basketball court. You're now optimizing for some other thing. And any team that voluntarily picked that up would probably lose. Uh, whereas if other teams didn't, the only way you could possibly put it on people is by forcing it on everybody because you're no longer optimizing for the objective. You're now optimizing partially for the objective as constrained by some other variable. So you are actually lessening outcome. If you want to be competitive, whether it's in business, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in you know academics, whether it's in basketball, on a uh, at the top level of say the the relevant stage, whether that's the world in business, whether that's the nation, whether that's the the NBA as an association, you have to be optimizing for uh, outcome in terms of uh, mm. the objective of that thing, rather than introducing or exogenous variables that have, have some that don't have anything to do with the objective you're trying to achieve. Mm. Right. So in other words, you're almost creating in response to what you see as a hegemony that is ruling, that is biased, et cetera. You're creating another hegemony to be right. able to compete against it. And in doing so, that in what you see as unconscious bias or uh, systemic injustice, now you have to apply systemic injustice and bias towards those that you believe were the ones in the previous ruling hegemony in order to achieve equity. Right. Now, since you brought up hegemony, let me actually make this really clear because these diversity pushes that are tied together with the equity, because diversity is how you're going to achieve equity. You're going to bring in more diversity. And that until you get to equity, that's how those are connected. Mm. This is actually really important because the, the people think, okay, maybe they'll go along with it. You have to hire this many women. You have to hire this many black people. This is very prominent in, in academia. The call under diversity for equity is not actually to hire according to demographics, as they say. Right. Because they are. The theory that this all comes out of, which is the uh, critical social justice theory, the, the theory that this all comes out of does not see people as individuals. Individualism mm -hmm. is another one of those myths created by the powerful in society to convince 
A, people who are in the dominant positions that they deserve it, and B, people who are in oppressed positions that they have equal chance. And so you're an individual. Uh, you don't have to worry about racism and so on. It's who you are as a person. And so it's all a myth created to maintain power dynamics and maintain, uh, the, as you said, hegemony. So the call when they call for diverse hiring absolutely requires for you. This is why there are diversity, equity, and inclusion statements in so many hiring positions now. That's why they evaluate them is because you have to be able to have the authentic experience of that demographic to qualify. So if you're black, the theory says that it doesn't say, and I don't want to get any, any misconception here. It does not say there is some essential thing that is what it means to be black. There are not biological factors of being black. There are not, for them, it's everything is social. It has nothing to do with, there are, you know, essential characteristics of being black. There is the essential experience of being black in a white dominant society, however. And they say the only way to authentically understand that is through the critical theory analysis that comes out of critical race theory and intersectionality. So if you don't take on critical race theory and intersectionality to understand your experience, your lived experience, they call it, as a black person in a allegedly white dominated society, then you actually have a form of false consciousness. You're buying into whiteness. You're acting white. You're looking for white approval. You're, right. uh, you're white adjacent. They have all kinds of terms for this. They have much nastier terms that they actually call the people in real time, um, the friendliest of which might be coconut, um, brown on the outside and white on the inside, right? Uh, so they have arranged it so that when they call for diversity, which they're doing in order to achieve equity, the only people who qualify as diverse perspectives are ones who have the critical theory perspective of the lived experience of having that identity. So there would be it, hiring, for example, a black person who does not, ex, does not espouse critical race theory would not qualify as a diverse, a, a genuine right. diversity or hire right. for equity. Right. You have to hire a critical theorist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. So it, it's actually, um, it's actually a requirement to hire people of exactly the same politics. And as I'm hoping it's becoming clear, this is a politic that is absolutely dysfunctional in the real world. Mm. Uh, at best, it, it creates distracting variables and at worst it tears, tears the, the, the systems apart. I mean, you had the Washington state, uh, equity task force, give the definition of equity as disrupt plus dismantle the existing system. That was their definition of equity that they disrupt gave. Disrupt plus dismantle the current systems. Yes. Yes. So that's the definition that they're giving for equity. Right. And that is a state level equity task force. And this is kind of funny in the context of the conversation we're having that was commissioned by the governor established by the state legislature, eventually approved by the state legislature and signed into into reality by the governor on the back end of it. But it was done so after a referendum vote by the state that rejected affirmative action. And so, oh, we can't have affirmative action. We have an equity task force now. We're not doing affirmative action. We're going to have affirmative action in a trench coat called equity. And the definition of equity given isn't even affirmative action. Affirmative action, it's like you can kind of understand where it's coming from. Disrupt plus dismantle the existing systems is a complete, that's not even what affirmative action said. So it's much more radical even than that. So if you're disrupting 
and dismantling a current system. Um, and I'm, I'm actually writing this down. And I remember that. That was from several months ago, wasn't it? This that was January. before all the current cancel, the, the current yeah. controversy that we have right now. It was in January. And, and I remember you sending that to me. And so if you're, if you're thinking about imposing the concept of health equity on the healthcare system, you are disrupting plus dismantling the system itself. And why would you do that? And what is it that you're trying to achieve through that? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is that you're trying to, to dismantle, well, you're disrupting the systems of power and dismantling the system that enables them. That's what disrupt and dismantle refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're obviously doing that to take apart the system that is currently in place, which they believe is inequitable and replace it with one that they believe is equitable according to the politics that drive their beliefs about equity. And that's why I actually think that talking about equity, um, about when it's appropriate or even, I mean, depending on when I say appropriate, I mean, uh, on the table for discussion debate for policy within the liberal context versus when it is in this critical, which is explicitly anti-liberal in the philosophical sense of liberal, not left, right, American politics, anti-liberal, uh, approach to equity, which is that they are, you know, using identity group and, and completely, you know, tearing down, you know, excellence and so on and so forth, like we've just discussed. They're two different things. So health equity is actually a decent place to get into it because health equity is um, one of the sites. There's a better one that we can talk about in a moment, but health equity is one of the sites where, where there are some legitimate concerns and this is very frequently what happens. It's very important. I mean, this is alchemy session, so you have to understand how alchemy works. Um, there are legitimate concerns that have to be acknowledged and need to be put on the liberal table, liberal meaning left, right, and center, but agreeing to the rules of engagement of modern societies. And then there are approaches to health, health equity that just go right off the rails into something different that is a fundamentally different game. They're playing by different rules of engagement or in fact, different rules entirely that are cooked such that they can only win that game. Nobody else can win that game. So with health equity, the concern of course is that there are, it starts, it always starts by looking at outcomes. All equity starts by looking at outcomes and there are blatantly differences in outcomes in health. So health equity is interested in outcomes in health. Educational equity would be outcomes in education. You can, you know, employment equity would be outcomes in employment and so on and so forth. So health equity is very interested in differences in outcomes in health. So for example, they would be interested in seeing that on average, uh, black populations are more free, have a higher rate of obesity. They have a higher rate of diabetes. They have a higher rate of certain things. They also, if they're polled, they have lower trust of doctors that they tend to live, you know, you can do some, some studies of, of, of geographic studies of where they live with, with the demography. And, you know, they tend to live in places that have less access to healthy food or poorer access to gyms. You can conflate in economic class and say on average, they're poor, so they can't mm-hmm. afford the good foods. They can't afford going to the gym. They can't afford going to the doctor. And you can just start conflating all the variables and what this, there, there's something legitimate there. Uh, I think that looking at those disparities and outcomes is something that liberal societies, and again, that's left, right, and center, should be looking at and saying in a, in a very specific way, what causes this? Why is this happening? This is something that is happening. It is a fact of the world. Why is this happening? 
Mm-hmm. And then what changes need to be made within the confines of reality that can ameliorate that situation? Because if it's genuinely with, bad. With the possibility that already existing systems that have been put into place that have possibly um, channeled certain section segments of our population, uh, whether they be race or culture, to be dependent upon uh, a certain way of living as opposed to really being able to exercise the opportunity and the, the, the merit-based system that, that many of the others have, have gone upon could be possibly one of the reasons itself. Right. Well, there are, there are many, many factors involved, right. in fact. And so uh, the liberal approach to this would say, let's look at as many of the factors as we can. Let's try to understand it. This is what the, the great right. critical theorist from the 1930s, Max Horkheimer, called a traditional theory. So you try to understand the thing and then you try to start shaping policy according to a full, robust understanding. Understanding right. also that individual choice at the end of the day still matters. So and, and culture does influence individual choices rather strongly. So if you have a culture, I'm not, this is not attached to any particular race, let's say at all, but let's say there's a culture that just loves beef jerky and all they eat is beef jerky and they start getting hypertensive problems from all the salt. You know, everybody in that might say, well, that's a, that's a individual choice, but you know, you know, our, our community eats a lot of beef jerky or drinks a lot of beer or whatever. Or like with my, my, my community that I, I grew up with, uh, you know, I was in Little Havana and because uh, I'm half Cuban mm-hmm. and we love the Cuban bakeries. Oh, yeah. And and we love Cuban coffee and all sorts of sweet things and so forth. And yes, obesity was an issue. Um, something quite prevalent in our community back in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s and, and even currently. I mean, I live in the to, Southeast, as you know, and it's like fried chicken, everything, right? So <laughs> everything and anything that you can fry, you do. And then on top of that, everything has to be accompanied with butter and, and plenty of carbs and so forth. So Right. And that's why this isn't necessarily racial, of course, because Appalachia is, which is technically where I live, is not renowned for its healthy food choices <laughs> or right. opportunity to achieve healthy foods. And yet it also has dramatically poor health outcomes. Um, that's, you know, Appalachia, if you wanted to look at it, is sort of a, uh, hushed up, um, they have to paint them as rednecks so that they can, they can, can ignore the fact that they have the same low income and, and certain geographic constraints that lead and cultural constraints that lead to poorer health outcomes. So it doesn't necessarily have to be racial, but culture does influence like growing up in the South, you know there are Southern foods and you eat a lot of them and you get a lot, you get to like them and you want to eat them and they're comfort foods. And a lot of those things are just not good for you. Uh, so. Well, another example would be with my wife's family and my wife is Chinese and uh, within the traditional Chinese uh, that came over that were maybe let's say in the forties and fifties and sixties. And there is a reliance upon uh, Chinese medicine and not that all Chinese medicine is, is bad. I'm not saying that. But that whenever there's an issue or problem health-wise is that they always go to the traditional Chinese methodology as opposed to doing some sort of, as you referred to, a robust uh, way of looking at symptoms and coming up with a diagnosis and so forth. That's not what happens. It's, well, take this. This works for that. Right. Um, Almost, you know, in a sense of of where in in a Catholic sense you would have, well, you pray to this particular you know, saint for this and that saint for Correct. that. It's almost like that. And then all of a sudden, these problems compound themselves and then you end up in the emergency room and then in a long hospital stay. Right. And so, and so you can see that culturally happen. 
Right. And so health equity, I'm sorry, we were comparing traditional theories versus versus the critical theory. So a traditional theory of health equity would look at these things and what it would try to do is figure out the actual causes of things as, right. as it is, and then try to come up with sensible, whether it's uh, interventions, whether it's um, policy, you know, there are different things, different programs that can be put into place that try to intervene on those things and have a beneficial outcome. Whereas a critical theory does not approach it that way. A critical mm -hmm. theory, and this is again, still sticking back in Horkheimer, 1930s, that's developed ever since, and the book was actually called Traditional, Critical and Traditional Theories. It was published in 1937. And so this became kind of like the defining object of critical theories. Critical theories, which is what the social justice of today, the critical social justice of today is based on, critical theories see it that everything has to do with power and the only amount of understanding that you have to do is that the systems of power, wherever they're located, whether it's institutions, whether it's governments, whether it's how we talk, whether it's what we claim to know and not know, science, for example, is considered to be a white Western dominant system that's Eurocentric and all these other apparent sins. Um, those things are creating oppression for groups of people and they need to be liberated from that oppression by breaking those systems open. Original critical theory wasn't so anti-intellectual as this. It actually wanted to kind of understand the systems. The argument Horkheimer made was that traditional and critical theories are different, but they have to be used together. But there's still this agenda for one's moral vision and political vision of the world that's, that they see as being failed and that it, the object is to create liberation from oppression. And at the present day, the only way they read that is like, let's look at the outcomes, see where there's disparities, chalk that up to uh, discrimination or systemic bigotry or some other systemic power dynamic that's unfair, and then use that as a lever to try to break the system open and, and, and undermine it and replace it with a new one that they believe they can socially engineer to not have those problems. And they cook the books such that if the new system that they try to foist on us all fails, it's because we still have the previous dominant way of thinking that rejected it. And so it's still the same problem. It, it makes it so that everything is blame the existing system and the people who created the system and a kind of ethno-historical uh, identity thing and try to break it apart and replace it with something that, like I said, they socially engineered, but if it fails, it's because dominance is really hard to overcome. So it's still the previous dominant system. So we need even more radical action to break apart the permanent problem. And so it's not particularly interested in understanding why those disparities occur. It just wants to, like we talked about with the education, it just wants to do things that make the numbers come out even on the on the backside because then that's making mm. up for it. So but an example I've given before, actually, it's worth diving into is within the, the discipline of fat studies, which would look at airplane seats and they don't care about the economics of how, how airlines right. have to try to put as many seats in and figure out the right size. So they use what the fat studies people hate this term they call body blueprinting. Average human bodies have certain sizes, certain shapes, and there's a, you know, a distribution, a bell curve or whatever of what those sizes and shapes are. You want to maximize the number of seats for the, for the aircraft so that the airline can turn a profit off of it. You want to, 
you know, make sure everything fits. It has to fit within the actual aluminum tube with an aisle and all the different stuff. And fat people that have taken up fat studies will see this airplane seat is too small for them. And even the fact that maybe they have to wear a special seat belt that all the seat belts aren't really long um, for, for no matter how big a person is or that they have to buy a second seat sometimes because they actually take up two airline seats uh, yeah. by their girth they would see that as proof that not that there was all these interesting constraints that had to be work around, worked around and trying to figure out solutions like we have extenders for the seat belts and we have, you know, the opportunity to buy two seats, maybe even with a discount or whatever the different systems are. That's the traditional approach. The critical side says the people who design the aircraft don't like fat people. And in fact, if they had the opportunity, they would get rid of them. So they intentionally or just uh, willfully ignorantly make airplane seats so that fat people will be discomfort or discomforted so that they'll be uh, embarrassed so that they won't want to fly. And so this is just another way that they're trying to push fat people out of society and, and maintain thin normativity and body blueprinting and so on and so forth and not accept fat as a legitimate way to be. So it's a very different way to see, you know, there's all these things that go into it on the traditional theory side. And then on the critical theory side, there is, the systems of society want to destroy my kind of people. Mm-hmm. And so we have to destroy that system because it wants to destroy my kind of people. Right. So when now you, as we transition into talking about, and remember again, that the definition that was given at that council meeting in Washington state was that equity means to disrupt plus dismantle. When we move into the subject now fully of health equity, what is it that's actually happening as opposed to kind of the, the, the sunshiny language? Because I think, again, all, all of us in terms of between the, the sign and the signifier think of equity in the same way that we think of equality. And we think that they are synonyms, but they are not. They're not. But, but when we hear the word health equity as proclaimed by prestigious um, schools of public health like the T.H. Chan School of Public Health in Harvard, and we see that one of their main uh, objectives is health equity, which means to disrupt and dismantle. What is the danger of jumping in headlong into saying, well, of course we want health equity. Well, what are the dangers of that? There are a lot of things that can happen under health equity. So one of the things that happens is that health equity can be used kind of like I was just describing as a lever to uh, say, look, there are disparate outcomes in um, health by different populations, different demographic populations. So what we need to do is break the social, cultural, and political system that we all exist in so that whatever causes those disparities uh, goes away. And we'll replace that with a new social, cultural, and political order where um, whatever systems of power those are or how they theorize them are, are illegal or are culturally, uh, socially stamped out, strongly socially enforced mob rule is common in academia now where they yell to retract papers. There's actually a health equity example of that recently. It was a paper in Yale Law Journal that came out that was said that it is legal within disability law to triage in a pandemic around right. disability. And it, there was an online petition that was circulated, and I don't know yet whether it was successful to retract that paper and maybe punish the authors for, for even suggesting that 
it's legal to uh, triage and use disability as one of the triaging points. There was a call uh, in terms of um, a much more explicit call, which is on the other end. It's not just breaking the system that they do. The other end of that is to actually redistribute care so that you get equal numbers. And there was an article that came out recently uh, talking about how more black and Hispanic people are dying of COVID-19 than white people and Asian people in particular than white people. And so, um, and that was actually stated by Dr. Jerome Adams, the surgeon general of the United States well, from the White I mean, House that, podium. That's actually true. Yes. Uh, th there is a difference in how many people are dying. Uh, but the reasons again, traditional theory wants to know all the reasons, make the explanations and understand right. critical theory doesn't care about those. It just says, this is what's happening. And so this ar argument that came out in a popular press article was saying, well, black people in particular have suffered. It was something about, uh, something about equity in terms of, of, um, ventilators. And so it said that, you know, black people have suffered historically all through this country. Black people have worse outcomes because of systemic bigotry. Black people have all these disadvantages that have been cheated for so many centuries, yada, yada, yada. So if you have a black person who has comorbidities and who's older, I mean, it literally explicitly gave three hypothetical people, one of whom was like a 45-year-old white person who's successful and healthy and blah, 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 and mm -hmm. gets COVID-19, but it gets a severe case. The, the claim was that person would be prioritized over an elderly black person with, with uh, comorbidities with a higher chance of dying and less remaining life in a triaging situation, and that that shouldn't be the case. You should prioritize the less healthy, older black person because that would make it so fewer black people are dying and would help make up for this history and current situation of injustice. So that 45-year-old healthy white person, you know, I think it's even positioned that he's a doctor or something in the article, uh, should not be prioritized over anybody of Hispanic or black race because we have to make up for the equity. So now you're actually when, when I've talked about health equity in the past, when I've read about health, health equity in the past, I've always been careful to point out that only very rarely do you run into anybody and almost never in a serious outlet do you run into somebody saying that we should actually distribute care according to intersectional parameters. Right. But now there, I had to revise my thinking on that since one in a very serious publication came out in the popular press arguing for exactly that. Um, which and we actually rare. we actually spoke about that in our now infamous famous uh, interviews that we did in New York City, right on the rooftop. And we were talking and, and referring back to which was what was happening in the national healthcare system in Britain, and in the UK, the concept of intersectional triage was something that they were already starting to mess around with and play with and so forth within their right. system. And then we were discussing how what would it take for that actually to be applied within the United States within our current legal and constitutional structure? And there would have to be a complete paradigm shift in the way that our system works for that actually to be applied without the chance of there being some sort of legal retribution for it. Right. But, um, yeah. The 14th amendment actually cuts both ways. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, but no, we, I don't know if we've spoken about this in the past or not. It's been a, a long time. I didn't, I, I've known about this for over a year, uh, but I haven't ever brought it up because I don't want to want to run with some research somebody else did that they were claiming they were going to publish it and I haven't seen it. So I figure it's been about a year, almost a year and a half now. Maybe I can say something about it. But there were actually people reaching out to a friend of mine 
um, talking about nursing in Canada, saying mm. that the Canadian, uh, I don't know much about nursing. Let me just disclaim that. But apparently there are four pillars of nursing care. I don't know what they are. But there was the argument that there needed to be a fifth pillar added at the you know level of all of nursing you know as a as a principle of nursing a fifth pillar of nursing care which is social justice and that it explicitly in some of the documents that they had shared with nurses about this explicitly indicated that social justice in care would mean prioritizing uh, oppressed and marginalized demographic groups and restricting the care of privileged ones so as to achieve more equal outcomes or equitable outcomes really. And so that was actually, like I said, I mean, if that's, I don't have great, a great deal of detail about what's actually happening with nursing in Canada about that, but um, that would be at a massive institutional level. And that's much more concerning than, you know, even a popular press article. So there is on, on, on the two ends of the spectrum of health equity from a critical perspective, which is to not say the, the traditional perspective, because we want to distinguish from those uh, or between those. From a critical perspective, you have on the one end, we need to remake our cultural, our social and our political and even our institutional uh, systems in order so that there are now equitable outcomes on the far side of health. And on the, the crazier end there is, we actually need to take into account uh, demographic considerations under our analytical tool of intersectionality to decide how to prioritize care. I think it came up now because we actually are having to talk about triaging. And so prioritizing care to people who have been systemically discriminated against according to theory, or historically discriminated against to make up for those past injustices is kind of the far, it's like the frontier of um, health equity and kind of the most scary application. Because uh, obviously pretty much everybody's horrified that, that it used to be the case that we did prioritize care the other way. And we now see that as, as a tremendous failing of, you know, that we prioritized care. You can think they always bring up, of course, the Tuskegee, uh, experiments with syphilis. So care was actually, people were discriminated against in care in the past. And we see that as a huge moral failure. Right. Now we understand that that was a moral failure, but again, equity has to apply discrimination to try to make up for what it sees as an unequal system. And you have to really understand the critical perspective fundamentally sees the system always fundamentally sees the system as unequal thus justifying the need to apply inequalities in order to make up for those. So just to give a, a real take home for somebody of what is health equity, to, to give them a, a, a definition that they can understand when they hear that term or they mm -hmm. see that term when they're reading, um, what should they immediately go back to think of? I mean, we, we talked about yeah. that equity means disrupt plus dismantle. Uh, but then of course, then something needs to be built up in its place. Right. Um, you know, which is the part of critical theory, then moving on to intersectionality, you know? Right. Uh, so health equity, if you need to, the, what people should take home about health equity is that it is a, an effort to redesign, redesign our systems, which includes social, cultural, political, and even at point of care, uh, medical systems and principles 
so that equal outcomes by demographic group are achieved rather than by prioritizing quality of care for the largest number of people. So in other words, that even if that means to bring the quality of care down to where it can be equally distributed, as opposed to trying to achieve the highest level of care possible. Correct. That is definitely consistent with health equity. Bringing the total, I mean, that's what we talked about at the beginning with education, bringing the total quality of the, the, the whole system down so that everybody gets the same um, would be a priority of health equity. And again, this also involves our, our systems outside of direct healthcare because all health outcomes are relevant to health equity. So this would refer to, you know, this would, this would include um, food distribution, this would include, include uh, economics to make sure that people uh, who are poor get more money so they can, can maybe go to the gym or they get free gym memberships or, the, you know, whatever it happens to be, or they, they get uh, access to better food, whatever it happens to be. Um, it can include rearranging, basically creating segregated care so that if, a, say, a Latina woman um, goes to the doctor that she only has to see a Latina woman, which of course requires hiring Latina women and which is fine. Hiring Latina women is not the problem. Right, it is exactly. prioritizing hiring Latina women over hiring the best possible doctor. Uh, right. There, there, it, it can include a lot of things. Um, again, when I say, cause I think that there's something legitimate when we talk about say the influence of poverty on, on health outcomes, there's something legitimate there. And uh, there, at least within the, the liberal framework to discuss. And the problem with the critical approach in critical social justice specifically, which is not true of all critical approaches, a Marxist critical approach would not have this problem, for example. But the problem within the, the critical social justice approach is that it only uses economic status as a prop for identity politics. So right. they don't care about poverty. They care that more black people on average are poor. And so they don't try to cure poverty. They try to give more resources to black people, whether they need them or not. Right. Uh, it's, right. it's, it's like, I mean, it's like taking a hatchet to a surgery or um, just having, it's almost like an impressionist painting of, of something where you need a high resolution photo to get mm -hmm. the right answers about the world. Mm. So, in other words, when, when people then see that terminology that is going to be coming across uh, web pages, it'll be coming across blogs, it'll be coming across news reports, it'll be coming across, um, you know, various interviews or even from, um, unfortunately, the, the podium of the White House, uh, things such as this, when they see that, what is it that they should be thinking? Well, you know, we want to, as you said, use the liberal approach to be able to identify issues, identify problems, to find out, again, to use the, the phrase um, in, in the theory to, to really begin with, is that you know, correlation does not imply causality. And uh, if we're just looking for correlations without looking down to the root of what's the real cause of the problem, and maybe trying to lift people out of poverty um, in a sense of where we're giving people opportunity and making sure that that opportunity is there, and that we have equality in regards to the uh, the ability to have those opportunities would be something that would then help to move everyone up together, um, right? And as well encourage those things, um, you know. And, and I think that I take a look at my wife's family who came came over from China. Um, is that 
very, very hard workers. And I, I take a look at my family that came over from Cuba that was looking for opportunity. They, they were looking to get out of the, the boot of those that would suppress them and so forth for that opportunity to run with things and to make something out of their lives. And if we were able to encourage cultures and, and ethnicities and so forth to follow that process, as opposed to then dumbing everything down so at least we're all well, what is that when you dumb everything down or when you bring down the quality of care or you bring down the, um, the expectations of education or for a job position? What do you call that when you bring that down? <laughs> Mediocrity. Mediocrity. And does that actually help a, a nation that wants to excel in all things? Does it help them to excel in all things in comparison to other competing nations? No. No. Yeah. No, and do you think other nations that want to want to supplant the United States, for example, or even any of the other big Western countries as you know the the global superpowers? Do you think that they are they're focusing on like no, they are not focusing <laughs> Absolutely on this. Absolutely not. They are and focusing you... <laughs> on on creating the best possible objective. Um, right. So, I mean, maybe it's helpful though if we want to help have people understand why because it's difficult. There is a, this is the, the alchemy of the situation is there is a legitimate conversation to be had yes. around the idea of health equity. And there is a legitimate idea even under the word equity to it, which makes it much more difficult. You can't just say, ah, all equity is bad because then you sound like a lunatic and like right. you're just being dismissive and like you're being unfair. Um, in general, what I think we have to do is realize that they've built like a moral high ground, a castle that they live in that's very mm. difficult to defend or to, to, yes. to conquer. What we actually need to do is realize that they don't have the moral high ground. We need to steal their castle from them. I'm not saying we need to knock their castle down and everybody will just say we're awful. We need to steal that castle from them. So to do that, we have to be able to acknowledge the legitimate issues of equity. So to do that, I want to talk about the place that I think it's the most obvious in the world, which is in disability studies in specific, which obviously would tie mm. into health equity in a sense. Right. And so in disability studies, which is primarily almost entirely now a critical theory approach to studying the phenomenon of disability and in disability studies, they came up in the early 1980s, maybe 1980 itself, a gentleman named Michael Oliver in the UK came up with this concept called the social model of disability. Before that, there were two models that are similar, the medical model of disability, the individual model of disability. And what these ultimately do uh, is talk about where the responsibility falls for uh, dealing with the realities of disabilities. So in the individual model, you know, it's obviously the individual is disabled in the medical model. It's a medical condition that we need to, to examine and do what we can with. The social model says, and I think, on one level, quite reasonably, that societies that can afford it should take steps to increase disabled accessibility. Mm. They should, because there's no reason to believe that somebody's, for instance, who's in a wheelchair, uh, you want to mobilize that person into the, to the, whether it's the economy, whether it's full access to society, whether it's everything else, you want to give them handicapped parking spaces. You want to give them wheelchair access ramps. You want to give them um, elevators in buildings so that they can get say to their office if it's for work or they can get to the place that they, they want to be so they can enjoy something you want right. to create it and obviously it does cost money so the social model said 
some of the burden, the, 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 the steel man of the social model of disability says, you, the society does have some obligation, whether it's moral or whether it's just uh, self-interested economics, whatever you want to have it. Society mm. has some responsibility to meet disabled people partway. Yeah. To, to shoulder some of the responsibility of, of disabled access. And even in, in countries like China, which are not renowned for their treatment of disabled people, uh, or pretty much anybody, they have the, you know, the push the button to, ch- to cross the street and it makes a noise for blind people. They have right. the sidewalk inserts where you can feel them under your feet. They often have elevators. They, they do actually have handicapped parking spaces. Uh, in the United States, we enforce handicapped parking spaces. We, give, we don't just give a parking space that's wider or whatever, we give a premium parking space, the frontmost parking space, more space around it, bigger, easier to park in, easier to get in and out of your vehicle, easier to get into the building. And we enforce it with expensive parking fines that nobody else is allowed to use those. So we maintain that accessibility. This is actually equity. Okay. And we can go close captioning for the hearing impaired. You can talk about, you know, you name the disability, we probably are taking steps to ameliorate it. That's under the social model of disability. That is equity. That is equity that most people actually agree with. We are actually adjusting shares so that some people are made more equal than they would be otherwise. Right. 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 We are actually creating equality by adjusting shares, I should say. Mm -hmm. So nobody disagrees with that. So there are legitimate places where equity comes into play. Now, you can stay just within the social model of disability and see what happens when you stop talking about it in terms of a a traditional theory that tries to understand the benefit for the disabled people, the benefit for um, the society itself, the benefit for the Mm -hmm. economy, why you should create access, why it's the right thing to do within ethics, whatever it happens to be. And you can go straight into the critical crazy theory where they, for example, there is a movement within um, the deaf aspect, deafness, aspect of disability studies that says that if medical technology were to advance suddenly to the point where we could cure deafness, like we have cochlear implants and different things that actually can cure some forms of deafness now, um, that that is actually a genocide of deaf identities Hmm. and that deaf people should not want to do that. Now, obviously I'm content people in a free society where people, we see them as individuals, people can do what they want. So if people actually do want to, enjoy you know the wisdom that they gain from being deaf or they they like what it is to be deaf they're comfortable being deaf and they don't want to have to take on dealing with a cochlear implant or a surgery or whatever else i mean i still wear contact lenses and won't let them do the lasers to my eyes because i don't need those nightmares for the rest of my life but um if people want to that's their decision they're individuals but then to be promoting the idea that medical advancements that could cure or disability or even the idea that disability should be cured those within the critical theory are seen as fundamentally hating disabled people uh within the critical and and genocides if they're successful of disabled people because there would be no disabled people left so we even though they're all healthy alive and living their best life we've we've killed them we've we've destroyed them all that's genocide of that culture that's insane um and so when you start basing equity off of something like that you know we have to uh, put tons of resources into making sure this is actually part of the, the full expression of the social model of disability is that it is society itself that disables people. Having a disability does not disable people. Society itself disables people. Okay. 
you got to, that, that's so hard to get your head around. It's like, I can't say the sentence enough different ways for people to actually grasp it. But the idea would be that if society took all of the necessary efforts that it would take to make being disabled utterly irrelevant, then it would be irrelevant that people are disabled. So it's society's fault. Society is the thing that is disabling people who have different ability. They have a different ability, but they come out disabled in a society that doesn't take every possible effort to make sure they're not disabled. So the, the critical theory says society is disabling people who have disabilities like deafness or, or missing limbs or something like this. And so when you start trying to cook up equity off of a theory like that, you're going to come up with some bad ideas. Um, right, right. It, it's not necessarily easy to talk about in terms of disability specifically, but I think that that difference between the two aspects of the social model, let us talk about equity in the general sense a little more clearly. For instance, I think there would be room to discuss if you talk about physical limitations like disabilities, women tend to uh, sometimes have babies and maternity is a demanding process. Once you become pregnant, those nine months become, you know, demanding. There are health issues around that. Early motherhood, people often have to take maternity leave from work because they're so demanding to do the first parts of motherhood. Often mothers have to divert more resources to caring for a child possibly for the next 20 years. Um, mm. There's a lot that goes into motherhood. This is actually a physical limitation of our species. Only one side gives birth. And so it's possible that you could say an equity policy that would make sense around motherhood because this is a physical limitation would be, you know, let's make adjustments around people who take maternity leave so that they're still eligible for promotions. They're still competent. Um, and if they have, you know, when they come back into the workforce later, not only should they be able to come back at the same level, but their, you know, uh, their uh, promotion or advancement opportunities aren't hindered also. So we can maybe, maybe we can adjust shares a little bit for something like that. And again, I'm not saying you have to agree with it or disagree with it. I'm saying that there's room for a traditional theory, grown up liberal discussion about that point that a lot of people would be willing to hear and debate within the parameters of the usual rules of engagement. Um, and you can extend out from that if there was actually discrimination, if we were to provably show that there were discriminations that caused the wage gaps between, say, races or the, the gender and so on, if there were achievement gaps and we could find that actual discrimination is part of it, that we would be probably more willing mm -hmm. to say, you know what, four cents of equity pay on the dollar maybe is fair but you're not getting all 27 because some of that has nothing to do with discrimination, mm. you know? And again, I'm not saying you have to agree with it. I'm saying that that's within the traditional liberal theory. Um, so when we start talking about, you know, health equity, the question is, you know, there are problems. We have to recognize that there are problems. There are differences. Most of them have to do with economics more than anything, but there are actually cultural issues for some reason in surveys. Uh, many racial minorities, particularly meaning, as you mentioned, Chinese going to Chinese medicine first, uh, but racial minorities like black and Hispanic people tend to have distrust of uh, the, the American medical system, for example. Um, th that's a bridge that needs to be crossed somehow. But to say that what we need to do is fundamentally remake the system in a way that optimizes for a different variable rather than trying to solve those problems, which is what will get pushed under health equity, is a mistake. So there is going to be a necessary level of nuance to understand both sides of the issue, right? right? And there are there are 
things and it, it would really behoove people who are concerned as since this is alchemy symposiums to who are concerned about the nature of how alchemy, if you will, as, as you're discussing it, is changing our society and it's going to be used to change our society. It would really behoove people to spend just a little bit of time to start to understand the difference between something that falls within that. Let's really understand it and try to solve our problems, traditional right. approach, liberal approach versus I'm just going to complain and we need to disrupt. We need to dismantle. In fact, I would tell you the second somebody starts saying we need to dismantle, disrupt, remake, subvert, deconstruct, any of those words, a system, uh, those people probably need to be considered fundamentally unserious. They're not actually trying to learn what's going on in the situation and act accordingly. They're trying to foist a political agenda to change things where they get the advantage. Well, things might be different on the other side, but we're all in this together. Let me <laughs> let, let me uh, read something to you, and, and we can close with your thoughts on this. And sure. since we're this is the alchemy symposiums, um, this is a definition that came from the alchemy of finance, and and this is describing the way in which alchemy is being applied here. Quote: The scientific method seeks to understand things as they are while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth, that of alchemy, operational success. I mean, uh, since you told me where it came from, I know that that didn't come out of Horkheimer, and that's not explicitly the description between traditional and critical theory, but it is. If you actually, I don't know if you can do it on the fly, but if you reread that and change science to traditional theory and you change alchemy to critical theory, I think you'll have an elucidating yes, statement. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. And that statement is from uh, Mr. George Soros from the Alchemy of Finance from 1992. I mean, I'm telling you, if you actually did change those words, that could be lifted directly from Horkheimer in 1937, uh, yep. which was the foundations of what is known as neo-Marxist critical theory. And so uh, you're looking at something to where uh, the idea of objective truth um, is being supplanted by subjective truth. And the truth that we are looking at now is we need to not worry about what truth is true, but what truth works in order to accomplish our operational goals that we have, which is something you would hear throughout the sciences, throughout the medical um, community, throughout the faith community now. I heard it recently on a COVID-19 in the church um, symposium that was done. You hear this as well uh, throughout governmental figures. And, I, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the folks that are saying some of these things don't really understand what they're saying about moving away from objective truth to subjective truth in order to just accomplish what we need to accomplish. Well, are you being honest with those that you're discussing these things with, especially with a lot of the terminology that's being created, um, to help them understand what direction and what goals you have that maybe they don't, their understanding is you're going to help us to achieve what we've had all along or make it better, but that's not really what you have in mind. Um, you know, what you just were, were saying reminds me from when we were in London together last fall. And um, I quoted in one of my talks from a feminist theorist in the late 80s named Mary Oliver. And I can't, quote her from memory again, but I do recall that the thrust of the quote, which was a paragraph long, was, and I think this is actually close to verbatim of the relevant sent sentence, 
was that we need to stop being concerned with true theories or false theories or when theories are true and false. And we need to concern ourselves instead when they're politically useful. Right. And that's the agenda that's being pushed. So with, with something like health equity or equity in education or equity more broadly, but especially right now with the circumstances with health equity, we have to actually do the same thing, but in reverse, we have to be able to distinguish between theories that are interested in what's true and what's false and favor those. And we need to learn to identify theories that are only interested in what's politically useful where truth and falsity aren't relevant. Only narrative is relevant. And we need to not operationalize those. If we want to step away from alchemy and step back toward objectivity, we have no, basing our, basing our policies, basing our, our ideas, basing our behaviors as individuals off of reality rather than off of, of narratives that are spun for political gain. We have to very uh, diligently learn to figure out when we're being pushed with a theory that's only interested in being politically useful and to say no. No, we don't accept those. There's, the moral high ground is not in, uh, in that. Moral high ground is in choosing theories that are, are true or false, trying to get to truth, and then basing not just our decisions, but also our ethics off of the realities of the world, not off of a political agenda. Right, exactly. So for you and I, I think that both of us would agree. We, we come from different um, preferences in terms of our political views and so forth. Um, but we would say that pragmatically, and this is across the board, if, if there's something wrong with the, the healthcare system, let's say for the nation that you and I both occupy, uh, that we're citizens of, um, that we would want to see a pragmatic criteria of success in terms of how can we better the system that mm-hmm. we have? What things can happen? Can we have these discussions? As opposed to what is almost done, in, and I think that you refer to this actually, and I would, um, I would recommend that anybody that's listening to this to go to New Discourses, to your translations for the Wokish. Um, and that is, it's just a gold mine of being able to understand the terminology that, that undergirds what's happening. But you would see that within your definition of, of health equity, that it, there is a revolutionary aspect to this. And as opposed to, we all need to get together and figure out things that will work that will benefit those as well that um, are, are involved in in situations where by possibly by no fault of their own, that they have situations or economic inequalities that we need to talk, talk about how do we still take care of these people in the best way possible. Those are the conversations that are not happening. Uh, But instead it's a call for revolution. And you would see that almost in any field where critical theory begins to uh, become a part of it, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? That is the purpose of critical theories, is to agitate for revolutions. Uh, the, perp- the, the reason critical theory was invented in the first place was to explain why the Marxist revolution never occurred the way that Marx had outlined. And so it was to figure out what forces had prevented the social revolution right. that would liberate people from oppression. Uh, whether that's economic oppression, whether that's social oppression, and as it became later, uh, it became the oppression of ideas that was uh, of, of there being the idea of truth at all. That was the postmodern contribution that that people being able to decide what is and isn't true um, 
our friend Michel Foucault that you mentioned earlier said that to, to be concerned about, uh, he didn't specifically say this, this is the, the, an interpretation of a fairly long paragraph, but to be concerned about um, what is, to be concerned about whether or not what we consider is true corresponds to reality is to miss the point of what truth is about. The point of truth is that it has a political application as far as the postmodernists were concerned. So something that is true still has a political application. Something that is called true but is false has a political application as well, and they have that same political application. So the truth or falsity of a theory is irrelevant. Everything comes down to politics. And so, again, there's the idea that even the idea of believing some things are true about reality becomes an oppressive force that we have to liberate ourselves from. Foucault called the opposite, you know, expanding potentialities of ways of being or living. And um, that is not a good way to, to get to right answers about hard questions in the world. Uh, what you end up with, and so we're talking kind of about the rules of engagement in this liberal system, this traditional theory system. This actually is a, people don't understand what that's about. What it is, is it's a system of conflict resolution between differing ideas. So you have certain right. ideas about, say, policy or whatever. I have different ideas about policy or whatever. We don't actually agree in some of these. We agree in others. Um, what the, the traditional theory approach is, is a conflict resolution system. When you and I have a disagreement, we can say, if it's science, we say, all right, take your ego out of it. I'm taking my ego out of it. We're just going to go ask the world. We're going to do the experiment. We're going to look at the evidence. And whatever that evidence says, if it makes you win, great. I right. I'll give in. If it makes me win, suck it up, butter, buttercup. We're going with me. And if we're both wrong, we'll figure out some other idea or we'll go exactly. with somebody else's. And we're going to use an absolutely neutral arbiter of right. reality to make the decision. In law, we often use reasonable person standards. We use other standards, uh, you know, preponderance of evidence and so on, appealing to evidentiary stuff. But then when there is not that, we have a reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person do you know within the confines of society and in the postmodern or critical view there's no such thing as that there's no such thing as the access to that universal arbiter there's no such thing as a reasonable person at all we're all just trapped in our biases and colored by our biases that have been right. conditioned into us by society and so when you have people that are talking about disrupting and dismantling the system that want to overthrow everything it is inherently socially revolutionary and they have a system they want to install in its place that they've cooked up, which does actually have a means. It's not this morass of postmodern nihilism. They have a system for determining which truths are more true, whose right. knowledges are actually knowledge. And that system is whoever has had the most oppression in the past, whoever can make the most claim on suffering as analyzed through critical theories and through an intersectional analysis in critical theories, whoever has the most claim to oppression, their truth is the correct truth. Everybody else's truth is still true, but it's subordinate. So we're gonna prioritize the truths, we're gonna prioritize the care of people who have had more suffering according to the way theory defines it. And we're going to diminish the truths and diminish the care or whatever else opportunities of people who have had greater access, privilege, power, dominance, whatever the word happens to be. So they have a system when they say disrupt and dismantle, there is disrupt, dismantle and, and replace. And the thing that will be replaced is instead of us going out to the world 
to, to settle our disagreements, we now have to consult the intersectional matrix of oppression or matrix of dominance, I'm sorry, that's what Patricia Hill Collins called it, to determine who has the upper hand in a conflict of ideas. So we're no longer using an, an objective standard. We're now explicitly using a subjective standard where the lived experience of oppression is the only relevant subjective entity. Dr. James Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us on the Alchemy Symposiums. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.